This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's chat about property yeah, investing. Yeah, 100%. Let's do yeah, it. People love it. <laughs> <laughs> Greatest rain dream, right? I oh, know. I oh, know. Neither of us are in it. But we'll get to that in the conversation. <laughs> I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you Welcome back to another episode of Equity May. It's a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. If you've just joined us for the first time, a huge welcome. Uh, if you're feeling like you want to get up to speed with the basics of investing, check out our podcast, Get Started Investing. We also have a book to accompany it, so check that out as well. But uh, with that said, let's crack on. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this episode. Uh, this one, not about stock market investing per se, but uh, you and I are both in our 30s. We're slowly growing up, and we would love to one day own a house. And that sometimes feels out of reach. And so the expert that we're speaking to today has an alternative to us buying in the very expensive Sydney housing market where we live. Yeah, today is all about rent vesting. And I, you know, this was an awesome interview. I genuinely learned a lot throughout this. And I think we've both sort of uh, changed our views on it. Well, not changed, but it's uh, left us thinking a lot. I didn't have a lot of view about rent vesting. Fair call. Yeah. Now you do? Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, let's not front run the episode, but yeah. Yeah, it was, a great, it was a great discussion. We sat down with Sam Gordon, who is the owner and director of Australian Property Scout. They're an investment buyer's agency that is on a mission to retire 500 people by 2030. Now, this episode is sponsored by Australian Property Scout. And if you would like more information on building a property portfolio, you can reach out to them. The link will be in the show notes. They also do have a podcast called Scouting Australia Podcast. But Ren... Let's get stuck in. Let's do it. Before we do, an important reminder that uh, any advice you hear on this show is general advice only. Uh, whilst Equitymates is licensed, we're not aware of your personal financial circumstances. So make sure you seek uh, advice before making any investment decisions. So Sam, welcome to Equitymates. Bryce, Alec, mate. Thanks for having us here. Now, um, we've got to start. The Australian Property Scout, which you're owner and director of, yes. um, you guys have a a mission to retire 500 people by 2030. So, are you one of those people? 
<laughs> so I retired myself before I actually started the business. Um, so that was one of the really cool things. So I started the business back in um, uh, 2019, right at the start of 2019. Um, and at the end of 2017, I'd actually replaced enough of my income that I could, I could kind of leave uh, work and kind of went and traveled and stuff, which was really, really fun. Um, but I get a bit. I got a bit bored. Like it wasn't enough to live like the craziest, you know, lifestyle sort of thing. I was, I was, I was backpacking and having a mad time. Um, but at the end of the day, man, it wasn't enough to like live a crazy lifestyle on. So um, when I kind of came back after that trip, I, I was, it was, it was kind of over a twelve month window. I travelled about nine, twelve months of that. Uh, sorry, nine to ten months of that twelve. Um, yeah, and I was just pretty much looking for for something else to do. And there was a few things I was tossing up: um, real estate, uh, builder, kind of a few different things. But then buying property was something I had a mass, massive passion for um, and I'd actually been burnt by someone in the same industry like as a buyer's agent about two or three years earlier as well um, and so man it just kept ticking over in my head as I was as I was traveling that it's like like I should go back and, and be doing this as well so um, yeah man it's uh I, I like to kind of walk the talk I'm not someone just likes to you know talk about something I have no knowledge on um, so yeah definitely been there and done that and, and loved it so Sam you said you retired in 2017 yes. well you had enough to retire in 2017 you don't look that uh, <laughs> at all so either you got a great skincare routine or you've got a pretty aspirational story there so uh, tell us tell us the story yeah man yeah yeah so i'm actually i'm 33 now so i was 20 27 28 ish i think when uh, when this all kind of kicked off like in terms of being able to um being able to travel you know essentially on my terms and not have to work uh, man i bought my first property at 19 um i'm a i'm <laughs> i'm funnily enough i'm a farm boy from a few hours south of sydney um grew up on a, on a small uh, small farm with my with my family used to trek into to school and stuff left school at 16 literally high school dropout um just started working and then as I uh, as I got a bit older, I was I was I started saving a bit of cash, and and this was in the era we're pretty similar era here because I'm 33, so I'm only a tad older than you boys um, of like Fast and Furious, right, and all those sick jack cars. <laughs> and I used to go to school in Fairfield, a sports town in Fairfield, so I was just very big like Asian community and so these Jap cars are everywhere so I had this mad love for them. My dad was a mechanic by trade um, and so we'd go out and, and we'd go and inspect these cars that I really wanted to buy like Supras and Skylines and you know 200 SXs all these things and he'd just pick every single one apart um, and then I, in the end I just got sick of it and, and he kept saying to me mate just go buy a house go buy a house and then it just clicked in my head one day I'm like why don't I go buy a house like I knew a lot of people um, either made money in property or the super wealthy parked their wealth in property as well um, I knew that even at a pretty young age. So, um, so yeah, I kind of, uh, I kind of started looking into it, realized that I could afford, um, to buy something as well. And then, yeah, bought my first one at 19 and pretty much it was a, it was a two bedroom unit in Wollongong for 275 K, um, full renovator, got myself a nice discount on the way in, just like always a bargain hunter my whole life, did the renovation. And then when, when I was kind of going through that piece, I, uh, Man, I, I was at the dentist one day as I was doing the renos and stuff and he was running late and I'm never early. I'm never early, right? And for this one appointment, I was early and he was late and there was this um, property investment mag sitting on the table and I picked it up and I was reading it um, and I probably read it for 10, 15 minutes and mate, I was hooked. Um, left that appointment, asked him if I could take the mag. He's like, yeah, no worries. Took it, went to the news agent, bought all, there was three magazines out at the time. Podcasts weren't as big. This is nearly 15 years ago. Um, and then just absolutely devoured as much content as I could. And I joked that I kind of gave myself like a, a bachelor's in property because um, I just consumed so much content. And then I just trialed like strategy after strategy until I really, I guess, refined what I do now to, to a bit of an art form and, and a bit of like a, almost like an algorithm of what we chase when we go out and do deals. Yeah. And then pretty much just built an entire portfolio off the back of that. So 
it was pretty cool stuff. Love it. Well, we're going to definitely pick into that algorithm uh, in, a, in a minute. But, you know, we, we should address the here and now of Australian <laughs> property. A lot of us definitely. are really struggling with housing affordability. Um, yeah, including the two including of us. Including the two of us. And I feel like I'm going to ask a lot of questions <laughs> for a mate. Um, <laughs> what advice would you give someone like the two of us yep. who are struggling to get into the housing market right now? Yeah. So, um, there's a few big things in Australia right now. Obviously, interest rates have been on a ridiculous run. We've had, uh, I think it's 13, tw- sorry, 12 interest rate increases over a 13-month window, like wild, right, in terms of how, how fast it's risen. So, affordability has just completely dropped out of the market. Um, combine that with extremely tight stock right across the country as well and super tight vacancy rates because there's no rental stock as well as sales mm-hmm. stock. It is a really hard time to get in there. Um, you boys are also based in Sydney, right? And I'm originally a Sydney boy myself. Sydney's been on this crazy run for the last 10 years. From 2013 to 2017, it doubled in its boom. And then the COVID boom went wild as well. Um, And yeah, man, it's like my honest advice would be like I wouldn't be looking to buy in your hometown. So like the idea of of rent vesting is huge these days. Um, Even myself, I used to be a homeowner. I always lived in my own home until funnily enough, um, around that same window where I I was able to replace enough of my income, um, I learned a little strategy um, or yeah, I know we're going to dive in a little bit about the rent vesting versus primary residence and owning it. But um, yeah, man, just really learned how how much better it is to rent vest and actually um, get that debt back essentially from an investing perspective and then be able to go out and put that in the market instead so i'd be looking to rent vest um sydney's an extremely expensive place to live um get out there and invest in other capital cities and big strong regional centers and stuff like that i'd be trying to build the wealth out there wait for sydney to come back to be the right point in the cycle to buy um and then look to buy your primary residence when it's the right time to actually buy in sydney again and i've been i've always been a big believer and a big advocate of that unless it's the right time to buy in a in a certain city um for your own primary residence i wouldn't be buying because you buy the tail end of a boom you could be waiting 10 years until you get any growth again what's the actual point of holding that asset you go make money somewhere else and then bring that money back um, and put it into the market buy your own primary residence when the time's right it's such a mind warp though because everyone always says uh you know this year particularly end of last year coming into this year we're going to see a correction 20 mm. percent you know across major cities yep. it's going to be good i haven't seen it prices are still it's incredibly competitive out yeah. there at the moment. It's one of those things over the last 10 years, it just keeps grinding up. And everyone has said probably for 15 years, there's going to be a crash. There's going to be a mm. crash and never comes. It's like, how do you just deal with that sort of mentality? Yeah, man. I, I don't think a, like a big, a correction has definitely come. So Sydney did come back about 10 to 15% since the peak of early 2022. So in around about the 15 month window, it definitely has come back. If anything, maybe even an 18 month window since late 21. But the interesting thing, man, is like, it's not so much. And that's why I'm saying it's it's like, it may be 10 years until it's like the right time to invest again. And that's when affordability comes back around. So even if the market doesn't grow anymore, let's say it corrects by another 10, 20% and then just sits there and does nothing. There's actually no point holding that asset. It's, from an investing perspective, there's no point holding that asset if it's not going to do anything for the next seven to 10 years. Whereas instead, if you invested elsewhere and then brought it back in that window, um, man, even if, even if it did correct that little bit and then plateaued for a while, it makes it a poor investment. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those funny things. I think the Australian housing market is resilient enough to not crash. I don't think it will ever crash. There's too much love for property. There's too much investment in property. But with where interest rates are now, there definitely will be some hurt. There will be some pain. Um, but 10, 10 to 20% in Sydney is huge. You mm. know, If you're talking 20% on a $2 million house, that's 400 grand. Mm. That's a lot of money. Um, Where's that happening though? 
Well, it hasn't <laughs> happened yet. <laughs> like. well, wasn't there stories? I feel like you told me that uh, in the back end of last year, Balmain had corrected like 25%. Yeah. Mm. But and yeah. Balmain, well, that's going to be a four or $5 million suburb, right? Uh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So, so that's a million yeah. bucks. Yeah. yeah. So much. Yeah, but it, this is where it's like it, it, this is where it's a wild thing because like Sydney was never due for another boom, so it boomed and the unaffordability was there after 2017. Yeah, yeah, the market yeah. corrected then, but then COVID drove it into another mini boom because mm. no one sold. There was no one traded, no one sold, and stock was extremely tight. Yeah, and, and interest uh, rates were so low. Yeah, yeah that yeah. was a big thing. Whereas yeah. now interest rates are so high, prices are so high. There's no affordability, so um, it, it definitely will come back, but. Yeah, man, I'd, I'd probably be waiting a bit. Like, you've you got to wait as well for interest rates to actually set in. Um, one of the boys in the team asked me the other day, oh, well, you said in a podcast the other day, like, there should be all this hurt, right? Like, why aren't people selling already? It's because the hurt hasn't really come in yet. And that's why they're talking about this fixed interest rate cliff that's coming off. Um, people won't feel that until their interest rate rolls off and then probably a few months after that, if not six months. Because if they're fixed at 1.99 and then roll off at six, It'll hurt at first, but it still will take a bit of time for that to actually, you get three, four months of going from two grand a month to six grand a month. Like it's going to take a little bit for that to start to pinch. It's not an immediate effect. Um, so I think that's a, I guess, important thing to note on that as well. So you mentioned this term rent vesting. Yes. Let's unpack it uh, because it is an interesting one. Uh, Bryce, Bryce is from Wagga and uh, you've certainly said before that, you know, there's an, an attraction of living, renting in Sydney, buying in Wagga. Yeah. Unfortunately, I feel like Wagga prices went up a lot. Wagga uh, has also boomed, well. yeah. <laughs> Still more affordable though. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But let's unpack the term for people who aren't familiar with yeah. it. Rent vesting, what is yeah. it? Yeah. So rent vesting, essentially you're renting at the same time that you're investing. So you're not living in a primary residence. Um, and I think that's one of the really big things. The important thing to note on this is the banks don't look at your house, your own home. They don't look at it as an asset. They look at it as a liability because it doesn't produce an income. So rent vesting, yes, yeah, essentially you're, you're you're renting. You don't have that that big primary residence debt, um, and you're investing at the same time. So it's it's become massive, especially over the, probably the past three to five years. Um, but it's becoming a, it has become a trend over the last ten years, really. You know that I've witnessed as well. And so one of the we want to understand the pros and cons mm. of rent vesting versus owner occupier because yep. in, on one side you have the dream and and want the security of having your own home yep. and your own place to live. On the other side, you know, you work so hard for your money, you want to put it to work and and have an asset that over time is going to produce income. Um, From my understanding, one of the biggest advantages of rent vesting is being able to leverage the debt that is on there and to use that for tax advantages. But can you help us understand the pros and cons of of each side? Yeah, so essentially... um I guess the point I made a second ago about like the the debt level that the banks will look at of your primary residence, that's that's primary residence debt. So it's not investing debt, right? So um, they'll factor that in as, as a liability, not the same as like a car loan, but kind of in the same vein, like in, in a negative way, right? Um, whereas if it's investing debt, it's actually producing an income. Um, so there's a very, very big discrepancy between the two. And it was something I learned back, literally that was the time that I was talking about where um, I was able to transition. Um, I'd sold out of the Wollongong unit, funnily enough, um, the very first one I'd ever bought, I'd sold that and put that money back out into other properties and really started to build out some solid passive income. Um, and at the same time, I actually moved out of the house that I was that was my primary residence and t- I was at a debt ceiling, so serviceability ceiling. And then I moved out of that and rented it and went and rented something for almost exactly the same money. And my serviceability went up enough to buy another property. And so that was like the 
like the light bulb, that penny drop moment for me. I'm just like, hang on, what? Like, uh, shouldn't it be the other way around? Like, shouldn't, shouldn't it actually work better for you to, to be in your primary residence? But it's because it doesn't produce an income. And when you're out renting something, the banks factor it in that if the worst, worst thing happened, um, you, could, you could downgrade and, and go rent instead of 600 for 400 or something, you know, take a cut if you really needed to. Um, whereas with your own primary residence debt, they buffer rate you higher. So it's actually, it's, it's a big discrepancy and it's a big variance on that front as well. Um, there's, there's, Pros and cons both ways. I think the biggest pro is what you said before, the security and the stability of a primary residence. Um, my biggest issue with it and what I really um, realized a couple of years ago when I almost pulled the trigger and almost pulled the trigger. And every year, if you're doing well, I've been doing well in property for a while now. Um, so your kind of aspirations keep changing every year, right? But if you trade every, let's say every couple of years, even every three or five years in terms of primary residence, because you can, instead of being able to afford the 750, now you can afford the one and a half. And now you've gone from one and a half to three, but maybe your dream home's 5 million. Every time you trade in and out of that asset, you've got stamp duty costs on the way in. $3 million house, you're talking $200,000 mm. in stamp duty, 150, 200 grand, depending on your state. Um, you've got sales costs on the way out, similar sort of numbers, you know, 160 to $100,000, depending where you are. So it's like, can be a quarter of a million dollars in terms of in and out costs just for owning the owning owning the asset. Um, and if it's not your dream home, and this is what I've come to realize, if you're not going to buy your dream home as your primary residence, there isn't that much point owning it um, because yes, you have stability, but it depends what you're doing. If you are going out there and investing it makes sense to rent vest until you can afford that dream home that you really want. Um, if you're just going to live in a home and that's all you're going to have, it probably does make sense to buy it and pay it off if, if that's the avenue you want to go down. But like we're talking about investing, right? So like if investing's a, the, the aim of the game, um, I would be, and I literally am still now, um, I've got a $24 million portfolio, ridiculous amount of passive income. I still rent vest because at the moment, what I want, I actually haven't even figured out exactly where I want to buy exactly. Like, and, and when you start talking about a, $5 million plus primary residence, you don't want to go buy something that you're not 100% set on because the trading costs I was talking about before on 5 mil, you're talking like 300 grand stamps and like $100,000 sales costs on the way out. So it's huge cost to get in and out. So like, unless you know exactly what you want, exactly where you want to live and you can afford that dream home, it actually, in my opinion, it just doesn't make sense to buy it. Um, the idea of stability and security, it's like, yes, it is, it is good. But if you can have, if you can live in the same place, and you've got to change every two years because you don't have as much stability. I see it as a very small cost. It's a pain in the ass to move. We all know it, but it's a, it's a small cost in terms of what you can do on the flip side instead of owning that primary residence. So, um, and I've witnessed that firsthand with what we've been able to do as well, what mm. I've been able to do, sorry. Yeah, it's another mental dilemma of being like finding the perfect place for now and just wanting to be in. And it feels like there's obviously different ways that you can achieve that. Well, the other, the other point on that as well, is, that's actually a great point because- what you can buy, most likely you could rent, like if you can't afford exactly what you want to live in, in terms of buying, you could probably afford to rent there. Um, and so one of the other massive trade-offs, I mean, to cut you off there as well, um, but one of the massive trade-offs with this is so often you can actually afford to rent in a far superior suburb to where you can normally afford to buy. I, feel like, I feel like that's, you're living through that. I'm living through now. that right yeah. now. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. wanting to buy where we live and it's just increasingly becoming more difficult to buy where we live yep. and we would be settling on something that, is a, you know, we're buying it to get in yes. with the the knowledge that it's no not going to be the the dream home or yeah. anything like that. Yeah, 
And so then it's an interesting one because speaking of the debt, you then have these conversations with your mortgage brokers and or, or advisors and they're kind of saying, if it's not going to be your one, you then need to think down the track. Are you going to likely use that when you move out to rent out, keep mm. it as an investment property? If so, then you need to keep your debt as high as possible because then that debt turns into negatively gear it and so it's all these all these things flying around to consider and it's just like far out let's just move to Wagga so the farm out there just chill oh, it's just too many yeah but the, the thing that like, mm. at the end of the day it is just such a large amount of money yeah. that you can't you really can't play play around you know what I mean you want a little bit of advice on that as well yeah well we can take this offline yeah <laughs> well I, I just I, no, well, I just tell you dead honest man like where you and I would want to live it's not the place where you and I should own investment properties so like if we're talking million dollar suburbs especially million dollar suburbs in Sydney they are for the ultra wealthy in my opinion no one like no one else should be owning them because they are not a great investment um, they will bleed you way too much like you look at if we ran the cash flows on the place you could afford to buy right now to live in and then you run the, the cash flows on it as, a, as an investment dude it's probably cost you 40, 50 grand a year to hold that um, which means if you have to wait 10 years until the next cycle you're four to five hundred thousand dollars in the red not even taking inflation into account just talking negative cash flow until the next cycle kicks off. It's actually, it's not a good investment. Like holding something like that, it's not a good investment. That's why you're better off building your wealth somewhere else um, and then coming back and being able to, and buying that when it's actually the right time to buy in Sydney because you're going to get the double whammy. The beautiful part of primary residence, the best part of primary residence, there's no capital gains, right? So if you're going to buy in Sydney, buy in Sydney before it booms next. Like that's the time to do it. Not at the end of, 10 years of like the biggest growth cycle we've ever seen. It's a time to like walk away from Sydney, rent where you really want to live and go invest somewhere else. I need to bring my wife in. <laughs> <laughs> Send her the potty. Send her the potty. <laughs> so I, I want to get to uh, where we should be looking because I think uh, a lot of people will be interested in that question. But uh, a couple of questions about the uh, pros and cons of rent vesting V yes. occupied uh, before then. Yeah. I think one of the most common things you hear from people who are, you know, all in on buying property is that rent money is dead money. Mm. So, um, for you know, uh, <laughs> the old what, adage of how, our of our parents' generation. Yeah. So, yes. how, how do you respond to that when we're talking <laughs> about rent vesting? Oh man, it's. Um, I I would ask them to please show me their portfolio and how well they've done in property. Um, I literally don't take advice from anyone that has not done what I want to do or what I essentially even what I've done on, on my level. Um, if you're going to take advice from someone, get them to show you the books of what they've actually done before. Um, like it's, it's, it's so many of these old adages and, and, and sayings from our parents' generation that are so wrong. Um, they also say that, say that you should never sell property. Um, and if you never sell property, this goes in the strategy of what we do at Australian Property Scout. If you never sell property, it'll take you like 30, 40 years to retire. But if you build a portfolio um, that some of it's generated towards cash flow and some of it's generated towards growth and you see significant growth, you sell it, you bank the profit and you pay out your cash flow deals, you can retire in an extremely short window of time. Um, and this is where it's like so many of these sayings and these, these, these um, you know, things that our parents' generation talk about. That's why they're all retiring at 70, you know, or, or, or some, some young, some 60s, some 70s, you know, and it's because they hold on to these beliefs that their parents told them that are incorrect. Like, you know, you sh- in my opinion, dude, like you, you want to be listening to the people that have done what, what you want to do. Um, rent money is dead money. It's like, 
Yeah. <laughs> so, so just talk us talk us through the maths yeah. because it is. Uh, I'm just trying to get my head around it. So let's okay. say let's say we take Bryce's situation. I love how we can just use use as an example. Great. Um, <laughs> Great advice. Bryce buys buys a place in Wagga. Yeah. Rents it out. Yep. Gets income. Uh, and then services the mortgage in Wagga. Yep. Let's assume that the rental income there doesn't quite cover the mortgage. Okay. And then in Sydney, he's paying rent. Yes. So the rent he's paying in Sydney is more than the rent he's getting in Wagga. Yep. So there'd be a gap there and then he's got to service the mortgage as well. Is that... Yeah, like I wouldn't even be taking into account the fact that it's more expensive to, to rent in, in Sydney compared to what it costs to hold the property or the rental income that comes from Wagga. Um, I would be looking at the Wagga investment as a standalone investment um, because where you live and what you're doing, that's that's almost like a separate almost like a separate entity or yeah, separate okay. to what you're doing. So separate them. 100%, yeah. man. So like, um, yeah, and, and I would be looking at that more as how much are you saving renting compared to owning it? Because if owning it's costing you, let's just throw figures, right? $100,000 a year to own it with your now interest rates at 6% principal and interest, pretty big. Um, council rates, water rates, yeah, all, all that sort of stuff that you cop as, a, as, a, as an owner. Um, let's say you're sitting at 100,000, but to rent, let's say it's 50 or 70 yeah, or okay, 70,000. Yeah, that. So yeah, that's yeah. cash flow. Yeah, and I would be yeah. looking at that. And, and because the banks look at the cash flow, right? They look at the income coming in and going out. And so if there's 100,000 with no rental compared to, compared to 60, 70,000, which is your, say, primary residence compared to what you rent, they look at that. That's additional servicing. And it's not only that gap. It's actually, it's a different calculation even entirely because instead of, instead of them factoring it like that, they actually probably will factor an extra 20 in on top of it because it's primary residence debt which is non-tax deductible, it's not producing an income. So again, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a liability, it's not an asset. Um, so it's a far superior situation on that. And, that. and that's where I wouldn't even bring Wagga into the equation because that's the investing portfolio. Yeah. So just on, you just mentioned tax there. So that's actually something that uh, I w- would be good to get my head around. Okay. So uh, investing debt, yep. if, if you've got debt to earn an income, yep. that the interest you pay on that debt is tax deductible. Yes. If, you, if for your primary residence, it's not tax deductible. Okay, so the difference is it isn't. Unless you do an equity release on top, so let's say you had a one and a half, a one million dollar loan, your properties were two mil. That's your primary residence debt, and then you pull out. Let's just say you pull out half a mil, um, purely for investing purposes. Obviously, you guys probably put disclaimers in. This is not financial advice, um, but essentially, <laughs> well, like, isn't isn't the you don't you don't need a financial services license in property? <laughs> no, you don't. Man. I'm gonna say you don't. It's but, always yeah, wary, but it's no, always wary. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. So, like, let's say you're sitting at one mil um, properties, one mil debt primary residence debt, right? And then your properties were two mil. And then you go pull out the half a million, let's say, uh, you know, 75% LVR on that is is half a mil. It's up to one and a half mil. If you pull that out and do not touch it for anything else, that is um, that is investing debt. And if all you use it for is investing, yes, you can fully write that off. You can't write off the one mil, but you can write off the half a mil interest cost. Um, one of the other cool things is if you have that sitting in offset account or redraw or whatever, you don't actually pay the, you don't pay the interest on it except for what you use. So you can literally have the whole thing sitting in there. It's almost like, you know, bullets in the chamber ready to pull the trigger. Um, and that's what I always, always have a, a large sum of, of, of equity or cash sitting there ready to go um, to go and deploy into the market and start putting it to work. Yeah, again, another toss-up. Like, uh, <laughs> so many equations. <laughs> using <laughs> it's all right, boys. It's all right. It's like using like um, using deposit at its maximum, or just putting in the minimum deposit required and sitting the rest in uh, in offset. So it always depends on the individual. Are we talking primary residence or investing? For this sake, primary residence. Asking for a friend. Okay, asking for a friend. Um, 
Man, you probably, you probably, it, it, it's always an individual situation, right? And it depends how much you've got. If you had enough for like a 40% deposit, I'd be looking at the interest rates of like a 60 to 70% LVR, 70 to 80. If you had no plans to invest, this is if you were just purely, purely buying the primary residence because your rates are lower, the lower your LVR is. So it'd be worth looking at. But if they weren't considerably lower and you were wanting to invest, I'd be buying at 80% LVR. I'd just be sitting the rest in offset. If it's a minimal difference, you're better off doing that because, again, bullets in the chamber, um, you know, keeping the gunpowder dry for when you're ready to go pull the trigger on something. Mm. Anyway, back to what we were talking <laughs> <Yeah>. about. <laughs> I, I reckon let's get to uh, the question of for all those people uh, living in a place like Sydney, Melbourne, wherever that they can't afford yeah, yeah, yeah. and they're interested in where the best rent vesting opportunities are. What are you saying at the moment? What are the towns, cities, locations we should be thinking about? So, as a little caveat, I'm always I'm always very um, uh, cagey on 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 oh, locations. Yeah. When I jump. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I'll throw that out. Um, I'll give you a little bit though. So, so essentially, the way that we um, just because that's what people pay us for, right? The, course, in, yeah, in terms yeah, of the yeah, IP, yeah, yeah. Um, what what I'd be looking for and what we look for out there at the moment is, is areas that are affordable relative to incomes, right? So, if you look at Sydney and Melbourne, huge. Um, uh, the, the income to house price ratio is massive, right? In some suburbs, it's like 15 times the median income of that area to house price. Wild, right? Like absolutely crazy. And when you then when you go and throw in interest rates doing a 4% increase in, in a little over 12 months, affordability gone. Um, if you turn that on its head and look for the other locations that, and this is where I was talking before about cycles. And that's why like, I don't think the idea of buying in Sydney is smart for now because I feel like the cycle will come back around where that affordability comes back a lot, right? So that's where I would be looking to kind of come back into Sydney at that point down the track. But if you look instead at the other cities that are at their point in the cycle where they're actually quite affordable and quite low, um, that gives them a lot of room for, for propensity for growth. If you combine that with areas that then also have um, big infrastructure plans, um, big projects going on, super, super tight housing market, um, sub 1% vacancy rate, all these different things and factors that, that, that are really aligning for a great, a great run and a great market, yeah, essentially a great market run, um, they're the areas I'd be targeting. So there's a huge amount of regionals that really ticked the boxes on that, that didn't boom during COVID. That's the caveat on that. A lot of people, like Wagga Man, went crazy. A lot of, a lot of the regional hubs around, around um, Sydney and, and, and Melbourne, a lot of the cities really, especially Sydney and Melbourne because they were so much cheaper than the capitals and Sydney and Melbourne, like during lockdowns were terrible. Um, like I was here during it as well. It's one of the big reasons I moved um, and it was terrible, right? So, so many people tried to get out. Um, and, but a lot of those areas, especially in vicinity, had massive booms. Um, I'm originally a Southern Islands boy, like I grew up down, down, um, down that way. And I had, a, I had a bit of property down there. And literally the tail end of that in 21, I knew that there was going to be a market shift as COVID started to ease when they, when they pretty much just said, we're never getting back to zero. It's going to be as is. I took a couple of properties to market because I knew it was immediately going to ease. Um, and some of the stuff I'd bought down there had doubled again. So it, it had doubled in 20, 2013, 2017, it doubled again in the COVID boom. So stuff I bought sub like 350, 370 was now worth like 1.2 mil in a 10 year window. It was wild, but it, was, it wasn't realistic. Like it was an yeah, inflated boom. Yeah. So I took them to market, right? So they're the sort of areas you could be really careful of. And the regional areas, they haven't felt the full pinch of it yet of, of that come off. A lot of them have, but not in the way that they probably will. So Again, there's all these layers of like what, what you look at and, and what you need to be careful of. 
Capital city wise, like I actually, I, I like. I'll give you a couple of things here. Yeah, no. I, like, I like Brisbane, Adelaide, and Perth. They're both still okay. yeah. still quite affordable for what they are. Um, I still think they've got a fair bit of run left in the tank. Um, income income to house price ratio is very good, um, and there is a lot of uh, there's a lot of projects going on in the different areas there. So you kind of be honing in on those different areas and really picking apart the best ones there. The regionals, I can't really give you too much because yeah, they're they're yeah, so yeah, like yeah. isolated. You know what I mean, housing market wise, but. I'd go back to my point before, not the ones that were that were booming because of a COVID boom, um, the ones that have really strong individual economies and almost, if anything, didn't boom off that because they have, again, more room to grow. I, I always used to hear Tasmania thrown around as a place for rent vesting. I don't know if that's come off. Tassie went crazy, man. Did yeah, it? Tassie yeah, went crazy okay. 20, 2015 to 2020, but it has it has come off since then as well. It was probably- oh, Even we- actually through COVID as well. So 2021, late, yeah, yeah. early 22. Yeah, I think it was big run. when we were at uni uh, that I first started hearing Tassie. Mm, yeah, so yeah. if it, w- it went crazy from 2015 to 2022, we just could have got over at the start of it and we completely missed right it. Right at the start. <laughs> <laughs> I, I often think of- Think back about early days of um, of grad and stuff, and like what our serviceability would have been. Versus, obviously, the deposit aside, but like the prices of housing back even six or seven years ago, like mm. far out. If yeah, you just yeah, got yeah. into a three hundred thousand dollars something, and then yeah, anyway, man, anyway, what could be? I reckon what we should do is just start listing regional places and see well, if Sam says yes or no. So Bryce, so we, we, went, to, we went to uni in Canberra yeah, and yeah. Uh, Bryce, just, and we, we could even feel it at the time, yeah. in like the mid 2010s, that yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. there was a lot of building and a lot of, a lot of stuff happening. Um, we were in a shitty student house and all the houses around us were getting renovated. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Going through but, gentrification. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Bryce went back like a couple of weekends ago and you, Loved were, it. you were blown Loved away. Loved it, yeah. yeah. So Sit. what are your thoughts on Canberra? Canberra is another one that's it's actually had a really really long run I think because it's had so it's such a condensed housing market with so much um government like em- employees so it's, it's such a huge income population um yeah, yeah city really Canberra is a tough one for me because yields are so soft I, I don't like to invest anywhere that's got super soft yields I think it could still keep going okay um, but it's not going to shoot the lights out so there's different levels of different ways of investing. I'm not. I'm the way that we invest isn't isn't a, a blue chip style, right? So we don't go park it in something and hope for three, four, five percent growth, maybe seven percent growth annually over a ten year window. What we like to do is position ourselves early in a market just before a market goes. So we're always looking for those markets at the bottom of cycles. Um, like, man, if you bought something in Sydney now, in fifteen years you probably have done it right, yeah. But like, if you go put that money in somewhere else now, you probably could double it. And you could cash out in five years and probably go double it again before Sydney starts its next cycle. And so that is the way that I like to invest and that's the way that I would be investing. So I personally am not one to look for ones that are like plotters and, and will like go okay over the long term. I looked I like to look for the ones that are severely under undervalued um, and have that really good, really good chance of, of a massive upswing. So like if you look at um, even like Brisbane and Adelaide, they've they've both still got run left in the tank, um, but we got in quite early, um, 2018, 2019, 2020, and then those markets really started to kick off 2020, 2021. Um, they've still got run left in the tank as well, um, but we'll position ourselves before the waves. Like a lot of a lot of our guys have got in super early and we bought really cheap, bought really well. Um, there's plenty of guys there and myself included have doubled money in those markets since then as well in literally less than five years and not doubled capital in, doubled house price. So if you look at the actual, if we talk about the equity and like how much you've actually put into the deal, let's say you put a hundred thousand into a, a deal worth four hundred, and that four hundred is now even six, seven, eight hundred thousand. Your growth isn't yes, your growth obviously on the house price, but your growth is on the the capital you've put in. So if you've gone from four to seven, 
$300,000 growth on a hundred, hundred grand, like that's a pretty good return. So that's why I always like to look at it. And literally you can strip that hundred out after the first couple of years of growth, you can strip that out and go roll it elsewhere. What's your ROI when you're continually stripping equity and, and rolling into deals as well. So mm. I should work mine out one day because I, man, I was, when I bought, when I was 19, I bought my first, I making 35 grand a year. I put in like a $25,000 deposit and I just, I never made that much money before I, you know, obviously started the business and I do well now. But like before that, I never made never made that much money. I'd love to work out the ROI on on pulling money out of deals and what that initial capital bought me. So, so for someone uh, you know listening at the moment and thinking, yep. you know, this sounds this sounds great. If when you're looking to rent vest or invest, should we be optimizing for income or optimizing for growth to kind of get started from the deal, from the investment? Okay. Just to break one thing down, right? Rent vesting is like rent vesting is the strategy. Yeah, so yeah. rent vesting isn't like going and buying somewhere. Rent vesting is like I'm going to rent vest, so I'm, I'm gonna be renting where I am and investing somewhere else, right? Okay, actually, to answer that question, it's a couple of things because it, the way I always assess um, a client's portfolio or a client's position when they come in, let's say they got nothing and they're coming in with hundred grand income with a hundred thousand dollar savings or something like that. You're going to run out of capital before you run out of serviceability. So for that person, we need to make sure we're putting them in a good, strong growth location, making them a bit of a discount on the way in so they can strip that equity and get into the next deal sooner. If someone comes in with half a million dollars, but they're making hundred grand a year, they'll run out of serviceability before they run out of capital because they've got so much. It's a different strategy. So you go and target cash flow deals. And one of the really important things to note is a lot of people... You remember years ago, you guys would have heard about it because you're just West Ham age, right? Remember years ago, people were like, oh, you buy 10 properties, one a year, and then in 10 years, you sell half, you own the other half out, right? The, the big fella, you remember that? I don't remember that. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I always read it everywhere. Yeah, stock market blinkers. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> man, it was, it was huge for, for years, right? Everyone always talked about it. And, and the, the issue was everyone was doing it on like a, a three dollars $400,000 investment with a, with a standard yield. And it's like, when you get to the back end of it, the net cash flows are so average because all you've done is buy a standard house. Like, yes, if you bought in the right areas, you would have had great growth and, and, and all that. But like your net cash flows are average. So the way that I always look at it is you invest for growth with a decent yield. So it kind of takes care of itself, right? So you invest, but the property predominantly and primarily is there for growth. And then you also go out and you invest for cash flow. Even if you, and the two different property types, growth property, cash flow deal. The cash flow deal is still in a growth area and the growth property has still got a decent yield and a decent cash flow, but they're in the portfolio for two completely different things. Is where a lot of people get, get it wrong. They go all ham for the cash flow and they run out of capital and they're cooked. Or they go all ham for growth and they run out of serviceability and they're done. You need to build a portfolio with a balance. And then really what you want to do is, is you want to keep structuring and building it like that balance as much as possible. Keep pushing yourself, keep leveraging as much as, as much as you can to build this out with the whole idea that when you get to the back end, the growth properties going against what our parents used to say of never sell, when those growth properties have their growth cycle and they essentially peak out. You're wanting to sell them down, clear the debt, bank the profit, and with that profit, use it to pay out the debt of the cash flow deals. And so if you're building them almost in unison, let's say you're doing one for one and every growth property, it's literally there to recycle equity to buy the next one. But then let's say that's only $60,000, $80,000 to pull that out. The rest of the profit in that deal is literally in there to pay out one of the cash flow deals that it's paired up with. As you go through and you build out that, you go through and you build out that portfolio. When you start going through your sell down phase and your your debt consolidation phase, you're not just selling down a growth property to pay out a growth property with an average yield. You're selling something down to pay out something with a much higher net yield. And so, if you give a you know a simple scenario of 
let's say a deal for for four hundred thousand that's I don't know renting for for four hundred a week, right? So five percent yield, which could be a great growth property, could be a great growth location, um, and that's a, that's a that's a normal yield, normalish yield, right? In today's market, that thing after all costs would only be yielding you like that's that's twenty grand a year in rent. But after your holding costs, you're probably only sitting at fifteen thousand. You got five of them. That's what seventy five thousand a year. But if instead you did dual income or triple income on one title in your in your cash flow deals and you paired them up, maybe instead of four hundred, they were five hundred or something like that. Um, but you've got the same number. Let's say you still had the five of, of those deals. Instead of sitting at fifteen grand per property, seventy five thousand total from five deals, you'd be sitting. Let's say you had, you know, maybe around an eight percent plus yield or something like that, seven and a half eight percent yield. On a deal like that, you're going to be sitting maybe at $30,000, 25 to 30K per annum net passive per deal once it's paid off. So instead of 75K and having all these things and, and, and very exposed from a, from a very low cash flow level, you got these things that are really high net cash flows um, and you might be sitting at yeah, 125 to 150K net passive from the same number of deals. You make it sound so simple. I know. My, my biggest question is, where is paying eight percent rental yield these days? So what we do, we, what we're we do have is to pay him to find out. I'll send you the agency agreement. Yeah, Sydney. I swear it's Sydney. <laughs> yeah, not in Sydney. It's like a twenty-room hostel for something like. <laughs> nah. So like, it's what what we do is what we call uh, manufactured cash flow deals, right? So we'll go. That's why I said the kind of like two or three rentals on one title. So like the simplest way, and you boys been Sydney. Surely you would know at least about, I know you don't do much property, but granny flats, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Simplest strategy when it comes to this and actually quite effective if you're doing it in the right location um, is something like a granny flat. Um, and so you're getting two, you, you're building something brand new at the back. So you've got depreciation, you've got very low maintenance costs um, and very easy to rent as well. So you've got now you've got two rental incomes on one title. Um, and so on that one title is the key because you've got one council. You don't have two council rates. And that's that net holding cost of the singular asset is where you lose so much because you always have you always have council, you always have water, insurance, all this sort of stuff that's at full freight on a singular property, singular tenanted property. When you have your dual and your triple income assets on one title, um, you you literally have that one set of council rates, even if it's a slight top up, water rates. Water rates, you pass on the usage to the to the tenant anyway. Um, insurance, a lot of the time, you literally just increase your building insurance, which might cost 100, 200 bucks a year. And then a second landlord's policy, which might be three, $400 a year. So it's like very incremental, small net holding cost addition. Might be another thousand, um, but you've added this entirely new rental income stream on top. So here's the question. What's the most number of granny flats you've ever put on one property? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can, <laughs> I wish you could do heaps, but nah, normally, normally you're limited to the one. Uh, but sometimes you can do advanced strategies and, and turn the front house into like a, a dual income, a dual rental on that and then still have the granny out the back. Um, but they're very like state dependent and this that's just like one strategy out of, out of many. Um, we also do duplexes, triplexes, you know, unit blocks, things like that that we help clients with too. The beautiful part of those and the same as say the granny style development too is you have um, from a land tax perspective, right? So a lot of people, they start racking up a fair few deals, they start racking up land tax. Again, you go back to the singular asset. You just got that one property, it's that one set of land tax to achieve, sorry, one set of like rateable land value, um, which is which is a fair bit of exposure if you have to rack up heaps of those to get your your net cash flow position. But on your higher cash flow deals, you need a lot less of them, which is a lot less of a rateable land value exposure to achieve the same net income. So this is a lot of I realized this very early on where like 
I was like, I'm not, you're not getting, I'm not getting enough from these singular purchases. And that's where I started because I, I was very low income and I had to look for these higher cash flow plays that would take me to that different level. That's when I started really discovering, uncovering all this stuff for the grannies, duplexes, um, unit blocks. So Sam, obviously you know that we're looking for houses at the moment and uh, through our broker, there's, you know, he's kind of advised on what you should be looking for, yep. even though it's an owner occupied, just to ensure that when you do go to sell, you're giving yourself the best chance to have put yourself in a good position yeah what are some of the like non-negotiables for you when it comes to like looking for features of a house location those sorts Mm. of things from a either invest or owner like does it face north yeah yeah. that's a classic that is is a classic yeah Yeah. Yeah. aspect aspect north facing facing. such a premium on north facing yeah yeah it always comes down to what it is right um so when it's primary residence it's a very very different basket um, and so primary residence, yeah, man, all that stuff's super important. Um, it's probably more super important from a desirability perspective as opposed to a growth perspective. And I think the one thing to note on that is you may, you may be able to buy somewhere that you really like that doesn't have the schools, isn't north facing, blah, 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 all the stuff, but the suburb that you really like and maybe pay in a primary residence, maybe $500,000 less. The growth in that suburb will be the same, right? So it's not going to grow by considerably more because you buy the best one. It'll grow at the same level but relative to what that, what essentially what the value is of that property. It will grow in line with that. So that's why from an investing perspective and an owner-occupied, it's a bit different, really goes to the suburb you want to get in and what you can afford. When it comes to an investing side, man, I'm, I'm actually a really firm believer of, of, I guess what I said just then in the sense of like, your growth rate will, will essentially be the same. Even though they're more, des- it will be more desirable, it will always be more desirable. It will always be more desirable, but people will always pay premium for it now or whether it's in five years. So you're going to pay that premium now as well um, and your growth rate will be the same. So the funny part of this, and I've butted heads with a lot of people on their blue chips and always going for that sort of stuff. From an investing perspective, your chance for growth is actually higher on the cheaper ones because they're less desirable, less competition. You can normally actually get a better deal. And so let's say you pick it up at a better discount, your growth rate is actually better than the one that's at a premium that you can't get a discount because it's so desirable. Um, so from an investing perspective, that's the way that we look at things. And we don't invest in, in, in multi-million dollar suburbs. Um, so it's a little different from, from our end. Um, but when it comes to investing, man, I, I take those into account, but then like not non-negotiables for me. For me, the non-negotiables are the, the correct market and the correct market cycle. You buy in the right market, it'll do 80, 80, 90% of the heavy lifting, you know? So like get the market wrong, it's, it's the same way. Like that's where you, you, you'll do yourself out of majority of your growth because you're buying in the wrong market. For us, we're always looking for like the little value adds. Like can we convert something or, or add something to create an extra bedroom and bathroom? You know, is there something that we can do a cosmetic facelift on these different things for? So we kind of look more for the uh, manufactured routes down that avenue. That's because that's the, really the way that I built my portfolio. I know, I know it works. Um, but it doesn't really come down to, um, I guess, like the, the different stuff that it would from an owner-occupier pers- perspective. So it's always, we're always looking for that value add. Um, when we're building portfolios as well, we typically are always looking to try and make a bit of a discount on the way in as well. Um, 12 months ago, 24 months ago during COVID, it was every, every year kind of back from now, it was a lot easier. Um, where we are right now with stock as tight as it is, it's extremely hard to get like really good discounts. We still do it, um, but it's a lot harder than it was back in the day. Um, I would I would be feeling for the average punter going out there trying to start their portfolio now, doing it themselves, um, because stock's so tight. Majority of of majority of what we do is off market. We at the moment over ninety percent of what we transact on every month is off market. It's it's that tight. I've just got one question on that. Uh, obviously that would be one of the biggest benefits of having a buyer's agent. Yes. Yeah, is the off-market access. Yeah, yeah. definitely. It's, it's also um, understanding market value. 
Um, so even if we actually even go back to yours before, the average person who maybe doesn't understand um, aspects of a property um, or location or anything like that, whether it's for the really expensive ones or, or the cheap ones, that market knowledge, that person should have really, really good deep market knowledge. Like we actually get on the ground. I'm actually um, on Sunday flying to to interstate. <laughs> <laughs> almost got him. Almost got him. Almost got him. Holy shit, that was close. I've never been that close before. <laughs> <laughs> so like we're, we're flying into state like with a, with, a, with a bunch of us right um, uh, and getting on the ground and getting on the ground for a full week right and we do that regularly so we normally do that once a quarter um, and it's from an investing perspective most people won't most buyers agents won't do that um, but you don't understand a market well enough unless you're doing it and so yeah man it's it's very important from that end to, to understand market value even down to the street level and to the suburb level as well within a council or within a state you know, a city, whatever. Um, so that should be kind of the primary thing. And then also it's, it's getting access to so much more. Like, man, the average punter that, that at the moment in, in all our markets that we're in, if, if we haven't seen it, someone else has seen it as well, potentially. Um, almost everything that's gone to market, someone's passed on it right now because the market's so tight everything has probably been passed on that's hitting the open net. So if it's been passed on, it means it's probably too expensive or there's something wrong with the deal. Um, so when you kind of factor that in at the moment, yeah, man, the off markets are a huge part of it. But again, it's understanding the value just because off market doesn't mean it's a great deal. Um, you've got to understand it really from a deeper level as well. We should ask, so that's like the, uh, the reason why you want to buy as agent. Um, but you mentioned earlier that you had a bad experience with a buyer's agent. Yeah. So I guess... What are the watch outs? What are the red flags? What are the things to avoid? Not with you guys, but yeah, with yeah. otherwise. No, I mean, it's, no, no, it is a great question, dude. Because like the, the, the fellow that I got burnt by, man, I, I grew up reading about him in the magazine. So like he was like my idol, man. Um, but his business had turned into this huge volume game. And so, I mean, I signed on and, and this is where we actually, hey, you go, here's, here's, your, here's one of your key ones. Um, how much do they charge? Like what's their fee structure? So for them at the time, it was, it was 9,900. This was six years ago. I was only making 70 grand a year or something. Um, it was 9,900 upfront. So if someone's charging you the whole fee upfront, you got to ask why, because what's their incentive to actually do a great job? That should have been my red flag, but I was a lot younger, naive, and 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 um and didn't really pick up on the fact that that was. I also never I never asked any other buyers agent, so I didn't know if that was if that was the norm. I just thought 100 I was going with this guy. Um, so we split our fee up. We got a very small upfront, and then the balance is rest on the, the balance is is due on completion, um, essentially on settlement of a deal because it leaves skin in the game. It leaves it leaves essentially the dollars on the table to actually have to earn your earn your right and 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 earn your crust essentially of, of doing a good job. Um, they're the big ones. I'd say go online, but the the issue is is I've I've looked at this guy before like recently as well, and like they they kind of scrap the old accounts and stuff the new stuff, and so like the review side of things, you still should be able to find bad reviews on people if they've done bad jobs but it is a bit harder to find on that front as well but yeah man you have a good look around from that end and, and kind of ask around that fee structure as well one of the big things is like uh, asking the questions in terms of what you're trying to achieve as an investor have they done that themselves as well there are a lot of buyers agents that have popped up in the last one to two years um, that have literally done a course they think you can just go buy off the internet and they have no actual understanding. They've never bought property or they only own a couple of properties and not nothing against them from their investing perspective that's fine um, but I exactly as you joked about earlier in terms of it's extremely unregulated industry, um, I don't think someone should be paying them a substantial amount of money when they don't have the experience or they don't really know what they're doing in that end as well. So um, the experience is a really big one, the fee structure and yeah, probably the, the review side of things as well. Yeah, nice. That's some good good tips. So uh, my last question, like I find it really interesting, this whole idea of rent vesting, but the last 10 years, hell, the last 30 years in Australia has just been a 
almost an uninterrupted bull market. <laughs> Does this let, if the market trades sideways for a while, or even if it trends down for a while? And you know, I'm not saying like 2008 style catastrophic crash in the US, but just like prices come down to go in line with affordability. Does the strategy work still? Like, does it, or how does it change? Can I ask you an interesting one? You said there, um, it's been like for the last 30 years, been a wild, like a bull run, right? Mm-hmm. What what market are you referring to in particular? Oh, just Australia as a whole. Right. So, so um, I, I understand that there's like different sub markets. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, that's why it's an interesting comment, right? Because like a lot of people said that and, and it's a funny thing, man, because I remember seeing like buyers agents and actual people who were, were, were deemed as like professionals in the industry after Sydney and Melbourne finished their, their run in 2017 saying, we'll never see another boom like the Sydney boom. And then a couple of years later, well, actually at that exact time, you guys were laughing about Tassie before. Man, it was in the middle of a crazy boom it hadn't seen in 15 years. But the reason I ask about um, like what market you're talking about is because everyone calls like Sydney is king. You know, it has all this crazy growth and it never stops and the rest of it. Man, everyone's got such a short memory because the last 10 years has been wild. But the 10 years before that, 2003 to 2013, Sydney trends sideways. It came back in 2003. You paid more in 2003 than what you could buy a property for in 2012, 2013. Really? So Pitt, that's what I was saying before, man. Like, and, and literally, dude, have a look at like a 20, 30 year trend and look at the way markets move in cycles. Like a lot of people say cycles, load of shit and all the rest of it. Mate, have a look at like a 20, 30 year trend. Don't just look at the last 10 years. Um, Almost every market has seen a 10 to 15 year flat or sideways period. But if you look at 2003 to 2013, have a look. Sydney trended sideways, came back. Have a look at Brizzy, Adelaide, Perth. What did they do in that time? They all doubled or more, right? But in the last 10 years or the, the between 2007 to 2020, they all went sideways and went and did nothing. So that's why like um, I'm talking before about that example of of. I would be looking at where can I double my money in the next five years and then where can I double it again in the five years after that and then I'd probably come back to Sydney. Um, and I'm a Sydney boy originally and, and I've made great money here but I understand the market is cooked um, and it is unaffordable and and I, I I do not see any way up in the next five to ten years. I honestly don't. Um, but if you look at those long-term averages and see how they sit, that's why I laugh because so many people, people that are like big names in the industry have said it and I was like, dude, how can you say that? Like it's... If you look at those long-term trends, it's so obvious the way that it, that it plays out. And, and obviously, like I'm a I'm a I'm a property you know bull. You know what I mean? Like I love it on that end, so I know from that end. But um, but yeah, that's all I'd say. Is stress. Have a, have a look at that, and I think you'll be surprised, man. And there are a lot of graphs out there around it as well that show that breakdown of that lull period, and then all the other markets peaking in that time as well. So it's, it'll be an interesting read for you, man. Yeah. Well, I guess I'm going to have to take one for the team, become a client, then come back on the show and tell tell everyone where the, where the regional errors are. <laughs> I'll put the uh, non-descending no, in his no. one. <laughs> no, but as soon as you're in the, as a, a client, you're not going to want well, anyone else to know. Well, then that's, it. that's it. That's it. Because that's it, man. Because like literally, dude, that's, that's exactly why it is. Because like, I try and keep where we buy under wraps for as long as possible because it allows us to get the best deals and the biggest discounts for as long as possible. And then when areas start to go nuts, um, that's where... We're, we're, we don't really care so much because our guy, us and, and our clients have made so much money in those times. They've bought in early. They've, they've made discounts. The market started on a bull run. Um, that's perfect. It's fine to kind of talk about it at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Then you want to yeah. pump it up. Then you go 100%. on podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. So, it's, it's, a, yeah, it's a funny thing, eh? So, it's, it's uh, people always laugh about how KGM about it, but it's because like, we're very diligent on what we buy, um, and and man, I, I I handle every deal that comes through the business. We're we're pretty decent size now. We are one of the one of the biggest BAs in the country now, um, and but I still handle every deal that comes through because of the experience of me getting burned back in the day as well. Um, every property for every client is crucial. Like if one person gets a dud 
or, or overpays for something or buys in the wrong market. Like it just, it's, 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 it's terrible for that person. You know what I mean? And, and I wasn't, I wasn't just that only person, but obviously it was in there from a, it was, it was a volume game that they played in there. So, um, yeah, man, very diligent on that front. And, and I guess that's why I'm so protective on it as well. <laughs> well, if you'd like f- uh, more information or if you'd like more, uh, some help from Sam and, and the team, uh, reach out to Australian Property Scout. They've supported this episode. So thank you so much. They can assist with building your portfolio. They also have their own podcast called Scouting Australia Podcast. That's the one. <laughs> uh, with, with, I imagine, plenty more tips and lessons and um, everything that we've spoken about today. But I've genuinely learned a lot. Um, I don't know if I've left any clearer on what my strategy is, but um, it's been super interesting. And I know that a lot of people out there, whilst it might be the owner-occupy um, sort of strategy might be out of reach. It feels like there are other alternatives to at least get into the property market and, and start in um, alternative ways if it's not in hometown of Sydney or Melbourne or some of the capital cities. So, Sam, thank you so much. It was great. All right, boys. Thanks very much for having me on. Thanks, Sam. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.